Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Welcome to episode 22. This is part two in a series about wine, coffee, and terroir. Last week, we took a look at the ancient origins and how I believe you cannot separate the human element from the natural elements. Today, we're going to look at the soil from a different angle, from the angle of the microbes who contribute to terroir. If you didn't listen to episode 21, I suggest you stop right now, listen to that, and then come back here because I'll be referencing a lot of information from that episode, and then we're going to keep building on topics that we started in part one. So before I get started, I want to thank all of the patrons of the podcast for voting on this topic and letting me share it with all of you. So the Patreon supporters, they're a group of individuals who care about coffee education and support me and this project. They've made a monthly pledge to keep this information free and available to everyone. Part of their support includes voting on episode topics and things they want to hear about. So previously they voted on terroir and I tried to fit it all into one episode and I couldn't. So today we continue the journey to clarify our personal understanding of this vague concept. So real quick, recap from last time. The origins come, the the concept of the origins come from ancient Greece, where it was believed the plants were literally eating the soil with tiny mouths in their roots. And this original and most persistent definition of terroir is based in this soil theory that plants are made of the soil and that they express the land. And even if we no longer believe the plants have tiny mouths, um, many of us still can't disconnect the idea that the plant is transmuting the soil and expressing qualities of the place in its fruit. So for example, some look at the soil of a place and say that you can taste the wine. But no, this is not true. Chalky soils don't impart a chalky flavor to wine. Volcanic soils do not impart volcanic flavors. I think I need to say that one again. Volcanic soils do not impart volcanic flavors. Rocks do not interact with plants. We saw in the previous episode that most modern science does not support this theory of soil transmutation. But still, some of you want to argue that there are intrinsic qualities, intrinsically better origins than others. And I want you to pay close attention to when you hear anyone use that word, intrinsic. So you can say, okay, we get it. Of course, we know that plants don't eat the soil, Lucia. They eat the nutrients in the soil, the minerals. Right. I'm not arguing that soil nutrients are not important. They're very important for plants. But here's where we need to deepen our understanding, and it'll help us if we can develop more nuance around this understanding. So plants do not take up nutrients from the soil particles directly. Plants take up nutrients as dissolved ions. So for example, a plant does not absorb nitrogen because nitrogen has no charge. It absorbs the ions, nitrates. So that's NO3 uh, with a negative charge. It needs a charge to move. So it's not coming from the dirt itself as much as the dirt provides a matrix for the nutrients. The dirt is a structure. The nutrients can be found within that structure. And because ions need a charge to move, the water, which remember is polar, Water has a charge, so the water is going to be an important factor, but we're going to come back to water in a little bit. It's not as simple as swapping out your language, as swapping out mineral nutrients whenever you want to say soil. 
And it's not that we need to be more precise in our definition. Surprisingly, this is not a problem of language. I'm not asking you to update the language you use like I have in previous episodes, like in episode 18 when we talked about anaerobic fermentation. In the situation of terroir and soil, I'm asking you to update your understanding of plants. I want you to update your mental model. Do you guys remember xylem and phloem from high school biology? These are the transport tissues of a plant. You might remember that these flow in opposite directions. Xylem moves in the upwards direction from the roots and phloem moves down from the top of the plant towards the roots. So xylem moves mineral nutrients that are found in the soil through the roots into the plant. And if you stop your understanding here, which I'll admit is already a pretty sophisticated understanding of plants and most people would be impressed that you could defend terroir because you know that minerals found in the soil are taken up as dissolved ions and transported by the tissue xylem. If you stop there, you could make a compelling case for the importance of soil and flavor, but we're not stopping there. Because the problem with this understanding is that it's incomplete. This explains that plants grow with the help of nutrients in the soil, but fruit ripening is a different mechanism. Here, this is where we need to have this nuanced understanding to separate vegetative growth, so that's all of the green material like shoots and leaves, from fruit ripening, which is grapes. And it's during this ripening that they found that the transport from the xylem stops. So nutrients get into the berry mostly come from the leaves through the other transport tissue, phloem. So phloem is getting nutrients into the berry for ripening, and during that time, xylem has stopped. Talking about phloem brings us back to what we talked about in the last episode, that there is much more empirical evidence of the roles of the aerial environment like light and temperature in fruit ripening. If we want to talk about quality and flavor of terroir, we need to talk about fruit ripening, not vegetative growth. The stuff that happens above the soil is important too, and maybe more important than what's happening below the ground. We know that the aerial environment is important for fruit development. We know that the leaves are exposed to sunshine, and photosynthesis creates carbon molecules, and then these carbohydrates are transported to the fruit. Sugar accumulation comes from leaf photosynthesis, not directly from dirt. And if you'll remember in the last episode, we talked about research done in Adelaide and UC Davis that shows certain varieties produce distinctive compounds in the berries themselves. It's not transported through the roots or through the leaves. So the natural environment could be ideal, the soil could be perfectly balanced with nutrients, but if you plant the wrong variety, some characters will never come through. So you can have healthy soil and a mediocre fruit because it's just the wrong variety in, you know, a pretty good place. Conversely, you can have a variety that's very expressive and doesn't need perfectly healthy soil conditions, and this would lead to a really good tasting fruit, but it doesn't mean that the soil in one location is better than somewhere else. In fact, the soil could be very poor, but the variety can still develop the desirable characteristics. So when it comes to vegetative growth, xylem is key. But if we want to talk about fruit development, if we want to talk about sugar concentration and flavor development, then soil and mineral nutrients and xylem are not enough to tell that story. Additionally, even though mineral nutrients are found in soil, 
mineral nutrients have no established connection to flavor. And this doesn't mean that science has proven that there is no connection to flavor. It's really hard to prove a negative. It's hard to prove that something never happens because it hasn't been never already. So there's always, you know, an opportunity. But instead, science hasn't shown that it does happen. It hasn't shown the positive correlation. So as of now, 2020, no flavor has been shown to come directly from the soil. The effect of the soil is mitigated through the biology of the grapevine. So this means, again, that the variety is really important in the flavor development of fruit, not just where that plant happens to be growing. So I want you to imagine dirt as like a grocery store, as like the physical building with doors and windows and shelves. It is the, you know, the, the structure. And then the groceries inside, the, the things in the store are the mineral nutrients. And the variety of the grapevine is like a chef that will turn what it finds in the soil. So it'll go to the grocery store, buy some ingredients, and it's the chef, it's the variety that's going to turn those ingredients into a mac and cheese or perhaps a chocolate souffle. So the dirt has been getting all of the credit, but it's just the building. And as scientists do more research on the biology of grapevines, they see that the grapevines have a lot more influence. And this is a silly analogy, but it's important because so many people connect terroir, the soil, with an inherent, intrinsic, God-given gift of fertility to certain areas of land. And what I want us to leave behind is this version of the definition. Science does not support an intrinsic component. If you want to believe in terroir like you believe in God, with faith, I cannot stop you. I just hope to reach the agnostic people who thought it was based in science and share how science does not support this view. Terroir is religion. Terroir is politics. Terroir is marketing. It is many things, but it is not scientific. Science has not connected the role of mineral nutrition and flavor of the beverage. But what is well studied is the role of mineral nutrition, of soil mineral nutrition, and productivity. So in grapes, this is very similar to coffee, where quality was defined as high productivity. High yields were desirable and rewarded. A definition of coffee quality that is separate from productivity is, is a relatively new idea and really in the realm of specialty coffee. So now we're going to come back to water in the soil which is also known as soil water holding capacity. Soil water holding capacity is one of the most important parameters of agricultural soils. The water status is due to the soil, the structure of the soil, rainfall or irrigation, heat or dryness of the environment, and vine spacing. So vine spacing just means how crowded or spaced out the plants are. In wine, we want to know the amount of soil moisture or the water content in the soil because if soils are too dry, the ions, the minerals, cannot flow. So it can be a problem for nutrition, but dryness or water deficit can also be used strategically. This is where the concept of stressed vines comes in. Having a moderate water deficit is correlated to darker colors, meaning more anthocyanins in grapes. So the watering schedule affects the polyphenol concentration in grapes. The watering schedule can change the color and flavors of the fruit. So still no connection between soil minerals and flavor, 
but there is an established connection between water availability and color and flavor. So yes, nature provides rain, that's the natural element, but humans are able to irrigate, and in a lot of agricultural soils, we do irrigate. So the vineyard manager has a lot of control over how the grapes can express themselves. But it's a delicate balance between stressing the vine so it produces better fruit and then stressing it so much that you end up damaging it. So you want the level to be very precise and the timing of the deficit is just as important as how much or how little you irrigate. And there are consultants who get paid a lot of money to design a water deficit plan. Proper vineyard management requires collecting a lot of data like the water status of the vineyard. If you are stressing your vines on purpose, you want to know when to add water to avoid harming them, and you're going to need a lot of data points to know that information. So collecting a large amount of tedious data is the perfect job for a wine intern. I had to collect these water status measurements when I was a wine intern. I'll spare you the details of how to use a pressure bomb because it's really not relevant to the episode, but if you're curious to see how one works, I'm linking a video in the show notes. The pressure bomb is an interesting tool and shows you how much more information winemakers are asking from their vineyards than coffee producers are asking about their coffee farms. Water deficit affects fruit metabolism directly by encouraging anthocyanins to form, but it also affects the fruit in an indirect way by inhibiting shoot growth. So this is indirect because it could reduce shading. Less shade means more sun more photosynthesis, and more carbohydrate accumulation, and therefore faster ripening. And in coffee, when we talk about shade versus no shade, we are generally talking about other trees providing shade for coffee trees. But when we talk about shade in grapes, we're referring to the shade provided by the grape's own leaves, the the plant's, the vine's ability to shade itself. So the grapevine has a lot of leaves that will shade the grape clusters and can that can delay ripening and one method to avoid this is leaf pulling to expose the grape clusters and then you can improve and accelerate ripening you might also want to pull leaves if it's a little too chilly or maybe too wet as that can promote kind of mold growth like a concentration of that moisture so you want to pull the leaves and kind of open up the canopy so that you allow air and light to better ripen the fruit In 2010, I was working at a winery in Napa, and it was an uncharacteristically cool growing season. There was a lot of rain in the spring, temperatures during the summer were pretty mild, and the fruit by the fall was just not ripening very quickly. It was really delayed compared to the historical averages, and this made winemakers very uneasy. Many were not hopeful that the season would warm up, and if the grapes didn't have a chance to fully ripen, and it was time to start making the wine, then wine quality would suffer. They debated what to do, and the majority ended up pulling leaves to expose the fruit to whatever sun was there. And this helped speed up the ripening, and it seemed to be a good choice at the time. And then, a few weeks later, The weather turned, and we had this huge, long heat wave in August, and the vineyards that had pulled too many leaves in response to the cold weather had left their fruit exposed, and much of it dried out or just burned. Like, the the sun on the cluster, because grapes have really thin skin, will just burn the fruit. And those winemakers experienced the flavors of overripe fruit, and then they also had incredibly low yields because they lost so much of their fruit in the vineyard. It couldn't be harvested. 
The vineyards that had more patience and experience to know that something like that could happen were able to ride out the heat wave much less affected. This is why people talk about certain wine vintages. I will remember the 2010 vintage as one that tested the newer winemakers and separated the reactive, kind of jumpy ones from the wise, patient ones. Some Napa Cabernets from 2010 are really well balanced and have great fruit expression, and others taste like pie filling. And no one is asking me, but I'll tell you anyway, that my favorite vintage of Napa Cabernets is the 2005. Because it was also an uncharacteristically cool vintage, and the fruit was not ripening like normal. So it was a really challenging year. And it's kind of backwards, because it's my favorite vintage, because it was such a crappy growing season. And the winemakers that had relied on perfect California weather had really, they had very few tools in their toolbox to mitigate this. But the winemakers with more experience and skill were able to make elegant, low-alcohol wines because they weren't relying on the fruit to carry the whole thing. So the 2005 vintage let a Napa winemaker know if she was good or perhaps just lucky. And vintages in Napa are not as big a deal as they are in France. California historically has great growing weather, so for a very long time, every vintage was great. And if every vintage is great, then nothing really sticks out and it's, you know, can be kind of boring, to be honest. And that's why 2005 and 2010 are really interesting because they were problem years and it really separated um, the skill of the winemakers. But in contrast, Bordeaux in France has weather. They have actual weather and the vintages can be very different. And then this will also be reflected in the price of the wine. So a bottle from one year can be hundreds of dollars more if it was a good vintage, meaning a good growing season. So in this case, terroir has nothing to do with vintages, but good vintages have more to do with weather patterns and human problem solving uh, than with soil or any inherent qualities, any intrinsic qualities of the place. But this gets us to Bordeaux, the mecca of terroirs the originator of the Grand Cru system, a place where terroir is regulated by the French government. Another big component that we touched on last time was that growing plants depletes the soil and that the soil must be amended. So this means that humans must put back what was taken out of the soil. So how can terroir be intrinsic to a particular place if the soil is something that a farmer can influence by adding back what was lost? Descriptive soil studies have classed the soils in famous regions like Bordeaux. They found that the soils are richer in organic matter like potassium and phosphorus. So some could use this as proof of terroir, proof that the soil in the area of in this area of the world is better than the soil somewhere else. And this is a tempting leap, but this is not what the study showed. Science has shown that the soils in Bordeaux have certain characteristics and they are different. They showed that the soils are richer in certain elements, but not that those elements can be tasted in the wine. So you could hypothesize that that's why the wines taste different. The soils are different and the flavors in the wine are different. So, okay, maybe that's a pretty good theory. But just remember that it's a theory and it's an observation and it's not a fact. However, the interesting part is that even if later science can connect soil to flavor, 
it'll still be due to a human contribution, not intrinsic natural qualities. The Grand Cru system was established based on terroir, but it was established hundreds of years before science could weigh in. We must remember that the Bordeaux Chateau were very, very rich. Chateau means castle, so very rich people who owned a lot of land built castles and then they planted vineyards as a way to show off their riches. Grand Cru vineyard owners always bought organic material, like manure or compost, to enrich their soils. They invested in the vineyard regardless if the wine market was good and they sold all of their wine or it was bad and they didn't sell it. They did not practice hands-off farming. Since the late 1600s, they were every single year putting organic material back in and managing the land, and then 400 years later, scientists tested the soil, and then science showed that it was richer in organic material than another soil. So, shocker. So the, the differences in the soil probably didn't exist in 1855 during the original classification, but at that point, they already considered themselves to be Grand Cru, which means a great growth. Grand Great Cru growth. So they took care of their soil as if it was already the best in the world. So the humans enriched the soil to make it match up to their expectations. So then we get into a chicken or egg situation. Which came first? Are they Grand Cru because they have more organic matter? Or did designating them Grand Cru make the people take better care of the land and enrich the soil? So maybe the soil wasn't discovered. Maybe it was designed to be a Grand Cru soil. Now, I think about this like um, two little kids starting off in the first grade and the teacher telling one of them that they are not advancing as quickly and maybe they need to be held back a year, but they tell the other kid that they're gifted and special and they put them in a special class. And that simple act can really set up both of these kids to, you know, one saying, well, I guess people think I'm smart. I'm going to work a little bit harder and make that a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the other one who said, well, I guess I'm dumb, not even worth trying. I'm not going to get anywhere anyway. So just basically doing the minimum amount of work. We don't realize how these simple decisions early on can impact the future for generations. So Bordeaux, that region in France that has the most famous terroir in the world, we don't realize that at some point when it was in kindergarten, the teacher took it aside and said, you're special, you are gifted, you are better than everybody else. And then over the next several hundreds of years, they reinforced that by treating this area as if it was most special different place in the world. And they, they created that environment. What I want you to take away from this is that it's not inherent soil qualities, but farming practices and culture that created the famous terroirs in France. And even if the definition is extended, if the definition of terroir is extended to include other natural elements besides soil, like climate and geography, there is still a huge oversight. And this is why it was important for me to take our time with the subject and not try to squeeze it into a single episode. Because this one little word contains a whole world of history and has an important role in the economic viability of certain agricultural products. There's a moral component to it, that, that products that express terroir are more moral than others. And I think we need to be really careful because science doesn't support this. That understanding of terroir is through a religious lens. 
The science doesn't support that there is an intrinsic quality in dirt that can be expressed in the beverage. I know I'm repeating myself here, but I heard from a lot of you after the last episode, and a lot of you were like, yeah, but what about minerals? Or yeah, but what about France? There's a lot of yeah, buts. So this lets us get talking to what I really wanted to talk about today's episode, Um, but I really needed to make sure that you guys got the message about soil. So (laughs) we're a good way into the episode and we haven't talked about microbes, but this is where we're going. The people who believe in the intrinsic quality don't believe that humans have an impact. And if they do realize that humans have an impact in quality, then they believe that that part should be minimized, that the human should, you know, recede into the background and let the plants kind of express themselves. So I went deeply into the role of humans in the last episode and all of the ways that humans influence the flavor and quality and the expression of the product. And then today, we just added water deficit as a vineyard practice to show that humans influence the soil and fruit expression. And we just talked about how humans in France changed their soil to make it match their really high expectations and ended up having really high-performing soils. But we haven't yet talked about the microbes, and I know that's why most of you are here, but I couldn't just jump straight in. We needed these other parts for context. So the natural elements theory that terroir should only be the natural elements, this intrinsic theory does not account for the microbes that play a role in flavor. So I'm not saying soil doesn't matter. I just want to update your mental model that it's a direct line from soil to flavor. It's not a direct line, it's an indirect line. The soil has an indirect effect on flavor through fermentation products. For example, a soil rich in nitrogen that can pass it to the fruit can promote yeast growth and thus enhance the concentration of aroma compounds in the wine. And some of these aroma compounds like volatile esters are primarily produced by yeast in the fermentation. So if the soil is depleted of these nutrients, then the fruit is depleted of these nutrients, and then the fermentation that produces the aroma compounds is kind of handicapped. It's not able to perform at its best. So again, soil doesn't impart flavor directly, but indirectly, the soil is very important because it provides the material for fermentation, which is where flavor comes from. And again, humans have a lot of influence over that fermentation. So as a summary, the soil impacts plant growth, which impacts fruit development, which impacts yeast activity during fermentation, which then impacts the resulting beverage. I have a whole video presentation on my website called Worms and Germs for this reason. I realized so many coffee producers, so many of my clients were getting weak results from this fermentation step because they were overlooking their soil. And I couldn't help my clients in that department because I'm not an agronomist, but I asked a soil specialist to present with me and talk about the fundamentals. And I'm really proud of that collaboration to join soil health and tank health in coffee. So if you're interested in that at all, um, I'll leave a link in the show notes for that video. That's to say my issue is not with soil. My issue is with terroir being used as a shorthand for soil. Most purists argue that terroir is an expression of the land. And they go further to say that it's best to have a transparent expression of the land. I do not like this word transparent. I mentioned in the last episode that the hands-off approach is usually not very transparent because it leads to spoilage and not to terroir. 
And I asked you to put a pin in that from last episode because now we get to come back to it. So humans began to intervene in winemaking to keep the wine from going rotten and remain drinkable. A wine that was left alone was often undrinkable and an expression of spoilage. I think you'll agree with me that spoilage is negative. We don't want that. We want to avoid spoilage. But when we call it terroir, it's positive. It's, it's an attribute that we want to amplify and celebrate. But what if they are not in opposition? What if they're not even far apart along a spectrum? What if they are essentially the same thing? What if terroir is spoilage? There is a genus of bacteria called Streptomyces, not to be confused with Streptococcus, which is responsible for strep throat in humans. Let's keep them straight. So Streptomyces is a genus that contains over 500 known species of bacteria, and they are predominantly found in the soil and in decaying vegetable matter. And these bacteria produce a compound called jasmine that gives dirt its smell. If you'll remember back in episode 15, where we talk about how certain yeast and bacteria give off fruity compounds and can make your coffee smell like peaches and strawberries, well, there are bacteria in the soil that make it smell like dirt. Active, healthy soil is often very aromatic, and it's aromatic because the bacteria and the fungi are alive and they produce aroma compounds. So dirt doesn't get its aroma from dirt, from the bits of rock and sand and organic matter, Dirt gets its smell, its aroma, from the organisms that are alive in the soil. So dead dirt doesn't smell. So the Streptomyces bacteria produce a compound called jasmine. I've always pronounced it jasmine, kind of like jasmine, the flower, because the first time I heard it was from my sensory professor who was from South Africa, and she had this really beautiful accent that I loved. Um, but now, lately, I've heard some people pronounce it more like it's written. It's written G-E-O. S-M-I-N, geo as an earth. So some people pronounce it geosmin. Um, I say jasmin. Whatever floats your boat. I'm really strict about words. I think some words are incorrect, but I like the diversity of different accents pronouncing them. I don't think that there's an incorrect accent for how to pronounce the words. And if a word originates in a particular language, I think it's respectful to try and match that. But a lot of science words come from Latin, and I have no idea what Latin sounds like, so, you know, do your best. I think sometimes we can shy away from talking about science because we are intimidated by pronouncing the long words, but try not to be. Let's be open to learning better language, but let's not get tripped up by pronunciation. So the other key that I want you guys to keep in mind, besides the name of this compound, is that it has a very low detection threshold. This means that it takes very little, so this is 0.01 microgram per liter, to notice it. And another way to say that is it's equal to 0.01 parts per billion. That's billion with a B, not million, billion. It is so potent, you don't need to be a trained sensory panelist to detect it. It's easy for anyone to detect. It's not like when you are in a coffee tasting and you have a cup of coffee and you're smelling it and it really just want to say that it just smells like coffee it's kind of roasty and maybe you can finally get some dark chocolate and you're breathing deeply and really straining your brain to come up with a third descriptor and then you look over at your neighbor who takes like a tiny little sniff and then they easily rattle off that it smells like raw honey and cantaloupe and hints of truffle oil and it's very annoying um no it's not like that 
It's not like that at all. I believe everyone has smelled jasmine before. Do you know the smell when it rains after a long dry spell? Like the smell in the air. That aroma is called petrichor. And that is the smell of moist soil. And jasmine is a contributor to that scent. Jasmine is also responsible for the earthy taste of beetroots. And some have even described it as a smell of raw potatoes. In fact, communities whose water supply depends on surface water can periodically experience episodes of unpleasant tasting water when these bacteria release jasmine into the local water supply. And I've personally been to African countries where they process their coffee with surface water, which is also known as rivers. So I'm just going to leave that there for anyone who wants to pick it up because I need to move on. And if you're listening to this and African coffee and potato rings no bells for you, don't worry. Just ignore it. We're moving on. And we're moving on to Brettanomyces, or Brett for short. So Brett is a yeast that also lives on the skin of fruit. And it has insects like flies that are a common vector. So that's how it spreads throughout a vineyard. So an insect will land on a fruit that has Brettanomyces on the outside and it'll kind of pick it up on their bodies and then it'll fly away and land in another part of the vineyard or the farm and it'll bring the yeast with them. So I've talked about this yeast before in episode four, but in case you don't remember the flavors it produces, I'll remind you. The aromas have been described as Band-Aid, Barnyard, Horse Stable, Sweaty Saddle, Rancid Cheese, and Leather. With those flavor descriptors, you'd think everyone would stay as far away as they could from this yeast. And yet, it's quite popular in beer, and unfortunately, becoming more popular in coffee. The reason for this is because this yeast has a very complex metabolism. There are two main aroma compounds produced by Brett. The first one is 4-ethylphenol, which is going to call it 4-EP, and then 4-ethylguayacol, 4-EG, for short. So 4-EP is responsible for the most offensive, the barnyard, the sweaty horse saddle. So you can remember, phenol equals bad. And I'm sure many coffee professionals do not need to be reminded of this connection. But for EG, has descriptors like bacon, spice, cloves, and smoky. Sometimes I find these characters in scotch. Like if you've ever had a penicillin cocktail, the combination of the ginger spice and the scotch is very, to me, very reminiscent of 4EG. You know, when I was first getting interested in cocktails, I, I would look at the intimidating menu of these like really cool names and have no idea what I was looking at. I didn't know what ingredients were in these cocktails. So when you have no idea what's in something, um, usually you order by name. And I would look at a menu and I would order a penicillin cocktail because I liked the name. And of course, that's what a microbiology nerd would order. Like that is the perfect <laughs> cocktail for that. But I would always forget that I didn't actually like the drink. And mixologists will be horrified that I'm admitting this, but I used to get penicillin confused with a paper plane. So I would briefly look at the menu and quickly make a decision to make it seem like I knew what I was doing, like no deliberation, just boom, that's what I'm going to get. And that's how you fake confidence. And when I was making a quick decision like that, sometimes my brain would just like blurt out penicillin or it would blurt out paper plane and I would forget which one was which. Um, it was a lot of peas and then by the end of the night, I would forget which one I liked and which one I didn't. And then next time I was out, it was kind of a crapshoot if I'd get the drink that I loved, the paper plane, or 
the drink that I didn't like, the penicillin that reminded me of a nasty wine defect. Because I like bourbon, which is in a paper plane, but my preference is Japanese whiskey. And if I'm going to go for anything smoky, like any smoky alcohol, I will go to any mezcal before scotch. Scotch is usually my last resort. I really don't like scotch. And eventually, I had to remember it backwards. I would see penicillin on a menu. My brain would light up and go, ooh, that sounds cool. And then the other part of my brain would kick in and say, hey, remember, if it's the one that you think sounds cool, it's the one that you don't like. This backwards sensory training is something that I had to learn also backwards for butyric acid. When I was learning to identify defects, our instructor would dip a strip of paper into the jar and pass it to us, and we would have to describe the aroma and then identify the compound. And this wasn't like, you know, an interpretation exercise. There were definitely right answers and wrong answers. And butyric acid is common in papayas. So growing up in Guatemala means that I love papayas. They are everywhere and we eat them a lot. Papayas are crazy delicious. But Americans do not grow papayas, so Americans do not eat papayas, therefore Americans don't like papayas. When it was test time and I would get this strip of paper, the pleasure center in my brain would light up and it would remind me of being a kid and eating papayas in Guatemala, so I would describe the aroma in a pleasant way. But this was wrong, because in America, in wine, butyric acid is a defect. To many American palates, is interpreted as a vomit. Which really says a lot about how white culture views tropical fruits, fruits that are unfamiliar, and how a lot of those values can be infused into our flavor descriptors. And that's a topic for know, another episode or another podcast that's not... It's not something for me to really unpack in this episode. It's just something that I wanted to bring up because needless to say, I had to adopt the values of the dominant culture and then learn butyric acid backwards. So during this blind tasting, I would get the paper and if the aroma made me smile, I would have to remember that it was butyric acid and that it was bad and then flip and describe it as a negative aroma, even though it was initially one that gave me pleasure and that I enjoyed very much. Anyway, some of you may love a penicillin cocktail, but to me, it's nasty because of the yeast, Brett. And Brett produces both 4-EP and 4-EG aroma compounds. So you may be asking, how do you make sure that Brett produces more 4-EG and less 4-EP? So that requires some skill, some luck, and a whole lot of human intervention. Because most species produce both, it's just a matter of proportion. You could start out with a high proportion of 4EG and think you're hot shit, and then the temperature changes a few degrees, or someone is lazy while sanitizing a hose, and then there's a Brett Bloom, and then the 4EP takes over, and your leathery, spicy wine turns into rancid cheese and band-aid juice. So, remember hands-off winemaking? The purists believe that the humans should not interfere with nature and let nature express herself through the grapes into the wine, and into your glass. Well, in one way, I agree with the purists. Without human intervention, wine, most wine, tastes transparently of the microbes found in the land. And in another way, I do not agree that it makes the best wine, because transparency is usually straight-up spoilage. This is why I bristle when coffee people talk about coffee in a similar way, that the goal of processing should be to transparently show the coffee plant. 
I fundamentally disagree with this. A transparent look is erasure of the people who transform the product. And it may not even lead to the thing that we want. So it's doubly negative in that it's an inaccurate representation of what's going on and it devalues humans. In the quest for purity and transparency, many wines end up spoiled and undrinkable. I will note that we can definitely train ourselves to like spoiled wine. We can even pay extra for spoiled wine if we change the marketing and call them natural wines. We can even convince ourselves that we are morally superior for liking spoiled wine because they are the true wines. Natural wines are whatever, I really don't care. This is not an episode about natural wines. What I really find frustrating and disappointing is natural wine culture. So I don't hate the player, hate the game. If you enjoy a natural wine because you love the flavors, I'm happy for you. But if you enjoy natural wine because you think it makes you a better person to drink an untainted, true expression of terroir, then I don't think we can be friends. And if you think that the coffee industry should be more like the natural wine movement, I might have to fight you. Before we move on, I just want to make sure that you guys have this clear because I want you to be able to use the words with confidence when you challenge your friends about terroir. So, the bacteria Streptomyces produces an aromatic compound called geosmin that smells like dirt. The yeast Brettanomyces produces an aromatic compound 4-ethylphenol and 4-ethylguaiacol, 4-EP and 4-EG, that smells the range between sweaty horse spicy, smoky bacon, but mostly just smells dirty. So we have two microbes found in the soil and on the surface of fruits that give us the aroma of dirt, petrichor, and dirty, sweaty horse blanket. And how confusing in the English language that dirt can smell good. For example, I think petrichor smells good. I love the smell of the, the environment after a rain. Um, there's even a fragrance company called Demeter that started its line with a perfume called Dirt. I actually really like this company. I'll, now, I'll link them in the show notes because they have a scent library and you can get some really cool perfumes like Fresh Laundry and Tomato and one of my personal favorites, old library books. But I think now they're up to like 50 different scents. It's, it's pretty cool. But anyway, Dirt was one of their first perfumes. It's w- one of the things that started the company down this, this line. And If dirt is a perfume sold by a fragrance company, clearly it can be a positive aroma for some. But dirty, describing dirt, saying something is dirt-like, is always negative. Just just interesting to note. So both streptomyces and brettanomyces are found on the skins of fruit. They can be brought into the winery and give the taste of earthiness and dirt, for better or worse. But since the bacteria and the yeast live on the surface of the fruit, perhaps it was the bacteria and yeast on the fruit that made it taste like soil, not the soil itself. So this brings up four issues. Number one. Number one is that the terroir definition of taste of the soil and taste of the land could actually be coming from the fruit and insects that interact with the fruit and not just the soil. Number two is that microbes could be way more responsible for flavor than we thought, and not just in the fermentation tank, but way before the fruit even gets there. Three, is that the human element cannot be discounted. I do not believe that hands-off and transparency have a space when we are talking about wine or coffee. These are romantic concepts, but to use them means to devalue people. And four, 
Four is my favorite. What if when people were using terroir and saying that it was a taste of the land, what if that wasn't a compliment? Up until now, we've all assumed the position that terroir was a positive thing, a goal to strive for, a star to reach for. We all wanted more terroir. But what if we assumed wrong? What if another interpretation of terroir is not the romantic version of taste of the land? What if it was more literal? What if what they meant is, this wine tastes like dirt? And not even the good fancy perfume dirt? What if what they meant was, this wine tastes dirty? And this is the truth that Dr. Matthews writes about in his book, which is also linked in the show notes. We commonly associate the term in a positive way, but for a long while in history, terroir was an insult. In a French dictionary from 1650, terroir is defined as manure. And I'm sorry, not even a perfume company with a giant branding budget can spin manure into a smell that people want to spray all over themselves. The linguistic history is that terroir was used as a pejorative. It was not a compliment or an ideal. It was used to show disapproval in winemaking. The disapproval was that the taste of the soil came through in the wine. So today we think of the taste of soil coming through in wine as a positive thing, as transparency. But historically, the taste of the soil coming through was a negative thing. It was a failure in good winemaking. They were not saying wine tastes like dirt and it's good, they were saying the wine tastes dirty and it's bad. French books as far back as 1690 said that the taste of terroir was an undesirable flavor derived from the soil when the plant was not happy. It was an indication that things were not as they should be, because if things were going well, you would not taste a dirty wine. In the 17th century French wine culture, a taste of terroir was what you wanted to avoid. Here's a quote from Dr. Matthew's book. It says, quote, In Cognac, terroir is the lowest ranking of vineyards. They have premier, fin, bon, and terroir, on account of its strong, unpleasant taste, cannot be employed except for in small blending quantities. End quote. So if you had a wine that expressed a lot of terroir, what you really had was a problem. A wine got the designation of a terroir wine versus a fin, as in fine, or premier, as in first, or bon, is just good. So it got the designation of terroir when it was so unpleasant that it was the lowest quality in the winery. And this example in wine reminds me of an example in coffee regarding ferment. When a process has gone wrong, when a coffee does not taste as expected, when it is unpleasant, a common descriptor is to label that defect as ferment or fermenti or overferment. Just like ferment is negatively associated with rotting fruit, terroir was also associated with soil defects. In coffee, we still cannot disconnect the activity of fermentation from the results of the fermentation products. So for example, cooking is an activity and spaghetti is a product. But not all cooking always results in spaghetti. But this is how a lot of coffee production has viewed fermentation, that all fermentation results in ferment defect. It's a very reductionist way to look at coffee production, and it's also incorrect. And it can be confusing to a producer because they have known that over-ferment is a defect and a thing to be avoided, but then the specialty coffee sector is rewarding these extended 50, 100, multiple-day fermentations um, over the old method of 6 to 12 hours. 
So you guys know I don't like the term over-fermentation because it's a nonsense way to describe a dynamic process. To describe a biological process like this is like saying over-pregnant. A woman is either pregnant or she is not pregnant. A woman cannot be a little pregnant or over-pregnant or too much pregnant or just the right amount of pregnant. There is no correct amount of pregnant to be because the word over signals that there is too much. So over-fermentation is saying that there was too much fermentation, and this is nonsense. Imagine if you were served a piece of chocolate cake with onions in it. That's an ingredient problem. Too much onion, not too much cooking, right? You either cooked it poorly, you cooked the wrong recipe. I mean, it could be many things, but it was definitely not overcooked. You didn't cook it too much. You had the wrong ingredient. Remember the wine example regarding Brett? That fermentation could have higher levels of 4EG, but then shift to produce more 4EP? So it's not that it's over-fermented, it's that the products of the fermentation change from desirable to undesirable. So again, we must separate the activity from the products of that activity. And traditionally, if the fermentation's role in coffee is to remove the mucilage of the coffee cherry, then all that is needed is six hours if it's really hot to about 12 hours. And anything beyond that is extra. Anything beyond those 12 hours is over the minimum requirement. So if I use current coffee language, extended fermentations are also over fermentations are also defects. In coffee, we jumped from ferment being used to describe a defect that was economically punished with low prices to it being a desirable attribute that wins competitions and gets economically rewarded with high prices. Over-fermentation is bad, but if we change the word over to extended, well now, now that's desirable. It's kind of like changing the word spoiled to natural and now making that a more desirable, expensive product. We may have changed the words, but the actions at the mill look very similar to a producer. To an outsider, to an outside observer, a producer who was over-fermenting his coffee looks very similar to a producer who is doing extended fermentations. The techniques for making spoiled wine look very similar to the techniques for making a natural wine. The producers aren't changing. The thing that's changing is the coffee market and marketing language. Another reason I think it's important to point out these linguistic tricks is because many in the coffee industry don't realize the negative history between producers and fermentation. Remember, a bad fermentation was economically punished. Information for what a good fermentation was uh, was limited to a fast one or eventually no fermentation at all. Fast is good, slow is punished. This history, this connection, created a risk-averse population of coffee growers and producers, and very few coffee buyers realize the disproportionate burden they are creating for producers when they request experimentation lots with extended fermentations. And as consumers, very few of us realize what kind of systems, what kind of oppressive systems we are keeping going, we are continuing to support by buying these coffees, by rewarding them with our purchase. Because the truth is, most coffee producers have spent their whole lives avoiding this very thing, and now it's the thing that's asked of them the most. It reminds me of the frustration some of my girlfriends feel spending their whole lives diligently trying not to get pregnant and then finding out they can't conceive when they want to. 
the irony in seeking the thing they avoided so strongly. The scary consequence is now a desired outcome. And it's also important to remember that we cannot talk about wine terroir and coffee terroir in the same way. Remember, the wine growers in Bordeaux were crazy rich Frenchmen. They had castles and servants, and they were politically very influential. They had so much money, they planted acres of vineyards to impress their friends, and then they bought all of the necessary nutrients and organic matter to improve their soil and prove that they had the best wine for competition, for ego, not for survival. These wines sell for thousands of dollars for a single bottle. That's a single bottle. That's 750 milliliters. You can get five glasses of wine for $1,000. It's true that there are very wealthy coffee growers, but they are the exception, not the rule. The majority of small growers can't give the market, can't give us, the consumers, what we are asking for because they do not have the financial stability, the access to capital, access to new equipment or technical information or training to be able to experiment with their coffees they have an extremely short runway. And I think it's important to know this because where we come from helps us see where we are going. Our current positive focus on coffee fermentation is erasure of the oppressive nature of coffee history. It ignores how long coffee growers were rewarded for speed and volume. Most coffee growers don't know how to do these new processes like extended fermentations because the market never rewarded it long fermentations were traditionally punished with low prices. And now, some producers have whiplash because what was a defect a few years ago now can get them a premium price. And they need that premium price because coffee prices have been exploitative. They have been so low for so long. And now, we're asking them to do a 180, to do the opposite of everything they've been doing, but do it with the same everything. The same equipment, the same facility, the same level of knowledge, the same lack of resources, the same market volatility, oh, and then also throw in a global pandemic. It's like if you've been making tortillas for 40 years and now people don't like tortillas and they want croissants. And you're supposed to make croissants in your tortilla shop without buying any new ingredients or new equipment or any different tools or have any history of French pastries or baking, um, no instruction. You don't even have a recipe book for croissants. Someone just showed you a picture of a croissant on Instagram and said, make this please. I know I'm exaggerating, but it's not far off from the types of demands that some coffee producers face. We've used fermentation as a tool against producers, and now I see that happening with terroir too. The tool is that as an industry, we say we'll pay more for coffee if it has certain processes, and that makes us feel good because we do want to pay more. We realize the prices have been terrible. Um, but what happens is it ignores that we haven't been paying enough in the past. It doesn't correct any previous wrongs against producers. It just kind of bulldozes past these structural inequities and keeps the system the same. The power structure stays intact, consumers at the top, and producers remain vulnerable. We've just kind of moved the goalpost a little bit further. So nothing changes, and yet, as an industry, we think we're doing better because we are paying more. I think we should be paying more for what farmers are already doing, what they've been doing, not asking them to jump through even more hoops for their prize. But that's easy for me to say because I don't have a coffee business. It's easy to be radical when you're a group of one. It's easy for me to philosophize because I don't have employees or overhead. I just have my experience, a microphone, and this little corner of the internet. And with it, I hope to inspire curiosity about this beverage. 
What do you know about where your coffee came from? How far did it travel? How old is it? What variety is it? Who made it? As a consumer, what are you rewarding with your money? What values are you amplifying when you exchange your energy, your hard-earned income, for someone else's energy? And this is already a much longer episode than I normally do, so we're going to end it here, but there's a lot more to talk about. So I want to thank the patrons again who voted for this topic. It's been hours of reading and writing and recording and editing, and there's still a little bit more to come. So I really want to get into the marketing history of terroir in the next episode. It's because of the patron support that I can take time out of my work and compile this information free to you. If you would like to support more information like this, consider supporting this free podcast by visiting patreon.com slash making coffee. If you enjoy listening to these episodes and get value, please share with a friend and consider making a monthly pledge to keep them coming. With the price of one specialty cup of coffee a month, you get to put your money where your values are. If you want to be notified when the next one is coming out, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. Lucia is L-U-X-I-A dot coffee. Thanks for listening. And remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.